Um, in the consideration of looking in just a moment at Leviticus 18 this morning, uh, these next series of meetings mean a lot to me. You might ask yourself, why is it necessary for us to, several weeks in a row, gather together this way, which would seem to disrupt what is the normal, ongoing way of life in house-to-house -house or home-to-home, or how we have sought now over many years, six, seven years, to cultivate a way of life that reveals a jealousy to go house to house. Now, you might ask, well, what is the purpose of gathering this way? Um, I would say it's one of the beautiful freedoms that we have, which is to actually follow the Lord and to, in season, do what we feel God is asking us to do. We have the joy and the privilege to follow the cloud. Now, we also need the maturity to follow the cloud, and it's why together, um, as a team of leaders, for those of us that are involved in that, um, we spend, I would consider it to be enormous amounts of time fasting and praying and seeking God on behalf of his wisdom for us together as a people. There's not anything that we do that's just random. Everything is very intentional. Everything is very specific. Um, we are trying to be led by the Lord and to actually follow him and to do what he desires. And in that effort, we really felt from the Lord that it was important to God that we were together for several weeks in the month of February. We tried to do every week, but we couldn't get a space for last week. Um, so we're doing three out of four. Um, but really believing that these gatherings are going to be formative according to the things that God says to us. As we together come under what would be a corporate sense of the word of the Lord. Where we are together hearing the same thing together as a people, as a tribe, as a family, as a church, where what God says to us would then, as we rise after these days of gathering, would continue to be disseminated into the houses and the life that each of those churches are longing to cultivate together. So it's not even just random like we got bored with the other way of gathering. We really felt specifically from the Lord that there was something he was longing to say to us together as a people. And so we've postured our hearts that way and have been praying now for several months in anticipation of gathering together under the banner of God's leadership to hear something together from the Lord. And so we'll begin these next three weeks of gathering with the consideration that context is king. Context matters. Um, it would be my desire to bring a little more clarity this morning to why we do what we do and why it matters to God. Why do we actually do what we do, and why are we jealous for the way of life together that we're jealous for? Because that's what we're jealous for. If you've been around for any period of time, you know that to us, what the Bible reveals is that the church is not some event that happens on Sundays. 
If you've been around, you've heard it a thousand times possibly or more. The church is not defined as an event that happens in a particular space on Sundays or what other day you might choose for your day of gathering or activities. The church is not a 90-minute event. It's not a 60-minute event. It's not a two-hour event. Or for those of us that are really dynamic and charismatic, it's not a three-hour event. It's none of those things. The church is a people that have been purchased with the blood of God's Son. The church is a people that have been purchased with the blood of God's Son. And now, through the housing of a divine life, we who have pledged our allegiance to Jesus as King have been given the down payment, the pledge, so to speak, an initial deposit, which is the Holy Spirit, to work within us and to align us to God's agenda. And those of us that are purchased by blood, and that are being transformed through the housing of a divine life, we together are the church. Right? There are many that gather on Sundays that have never actually yielded their life to the Christ. So gathering in a building or attending an event doesn't actually mean that you've had a conversion. Right? There are many that because we attend on a Sunday and pray before our meals, we have a particular Christian confession but we have a confession that lacks a conversion, right? We've not actually ever been converted through the yielding of our lives to now the power and the life and the grace of the Holy Ghost that has been given to us as a down payment is actually alive on the inside and beginning that work of transforming our lives, making us into the image of Jesus. Right? You can attend church for 40 years, pray before meals, at times given offerings. And it doesn't actually mean that your heart has ever been yielded, that you've ever been conquered, that you've ever actually been converted, that that work of transformation has ever started. Right? And so in defining the church as a people, we are jealous for a way of life that comes under God's leadership. Hear that. We're not jealous for Sunday attendance. You're not killing it if you show up on Sundays. As a matter of fact, you may be getting killed by it in real life. Because you forfeited all of the influence at times and God's agenda to a 60, 90, or two-hour, three-hour, whatever, four-hour window on a Sunday. Right? Thinking that if we subscribe to a mentality where I attend Sunday and that's all that God wants from me. It's off because the church is not an event. It's not something that happens and you attend it. The church is a people. They've been purchased with blood. They're being transformed by a divine life. And together now, they are a new creation. We individually are a new creation through a born-again experience. We await a new creation at the end of the age, which is the transformation of our bodies where we will be glorified and become eternal. But together, as a people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, we are now a people that have been purchased with blood. The reconciliation of the nations is creating the expression of one new man. We're a Jesus people. The wall of enmity and hostility, the eternal divide has come down through the wisdom of God's cross and the blood of his Son, 
He has made a mockery of the powers and rulers and all of their influence to subdivide and categorize and create hostility between people groups. We are no longer defined, nor are we playing the preference game to black, white, yellow, rich, poor, my side of town, your side of town, colors, ethnicities, social status, political affiliation. We're no longer playing these games because the blood of Jesus has redefined us as a people. We now together have been redeemed from the corruption of the nations. The influence of rulers and powers that are holding people bondage to their influence and perpetuating hostility between people groups. You don't have to look far. All you have to do is watch the news or scroll through social media to realize the enmity and the hostility between people groups. And that's because there's the influence of rulers and powers that are holding people captive to their influence. We believe this, not just because we're weirdos, because it's what the Bible describes. Paul says in Ephesians 2, at one time you all lived your life that way. But now we're the Colossians 1 reality. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of the wicked one. We've been brought out from under the tyranny of the leadership of rulers and powers. And we've been brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, the light of the glory and the radiant one, the son of God, King Jesus. And now together, we are a redeemed family. Together, we are the expression of one new man. And we are family, but God is making us to be family. We're not just family theologically. Well, praise God for you, brother so-and-so and sister who's a what's-it. Like, we're family. No, it's beyond the threshold or our boundaries of it just being appropriated in a theological way. We are family theologically, but our way of life together is making us family formationally. Where God is doing something in the midst of this family of new creatures. And I use that language intentionally because if any man be in Christ, that man is now a new creature. This is our individual new creation experience. If we are in Christ, then we are being radically transformed. That's not a suggestion. If we are in Christ, then our housing of a divine life is radically transforming us. In an ongoing way, we are being changed. But then together as a family, we are a family of new creatures. We are a family that is a new creation, and we are now a new entity throughout the nations of the world. We are a new version of humanity, according to Romans 6. We are into the grave alongside with Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin and no longer yielding your members to its passions, 
Consider yourselves buried with him, even through the passing of the baptismal waters. Think of yourselves in these terms, where you are no longer alive according to who you used to know yourself to be. But because of your pledging allegiance to him, through the waters of baptism, you have been buried. Through the waters of baptism, you have died with him. Through the waters of baptism, the same way that Jesus laid down his own life life, you too have laid down your life. In the same way that the Spirit has raised Jesus from the dead with resurrection power and glory, you too consider yourselves alive from the dead and now alive to God, living in fellowship with his Son and everything being fueled by the power of his own Spirit which, yes, is uniquely alive on your inside. And then, yes, too, uniquely working in our midst and then throughout the nations of the world on behalf of God's purposes. This is the church. We are a radically redeemed and a radically transformed people. This is the church, a family from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, purchased with blood. This is the church under the banner of Jesus as King, and not just our unique denominational preferences, not just our unique political hijackings, not just our association with social movements and hashtags and the adoption of a new language. We are a people where together, under the banner of Jesus' leadership and our way of life together is creating a unique place for God to abide in the midst of us. And that actually matters more than at times we would think it does. And one of the reasons that it absolutely matters is because there is a context that is most conducive for God's abiding. There is a context that is most conducive for God to walk in the midst of us the way that he longs to. And in a moment when we look at Leviticus 18, it's going to communicate the heart of this. But in our consideration, because you might ask yourself, why are we jealous to do the things that we do? Why would it matter that we just don't subscribe to a mentality that says church is an event that happens on Sunday. And I would say because in the yielding of the whole of our lives, which is what we're after, we're not compartmentalizing God's leadership, right? Where like we consider our finances, well, with 10% of my life, I'm gonna give that to God, but I get to do me with the other 90. Right? You look very quickly at the scriptures and you realize that that may be man's idea, but it's not God's. Even with man's introduction into what is the narrative of the scriptures, with man's formation and introduction, and the reason that I put it that way is because God made man, not the other way around. Right? God made man. And ever since then, man has tried to form gods in his own image. But God made man. And in the very beginning, in the introduction 
of the human life and experience. You find that God creates these beings, these creatures, humans, a man and then a a wife for the man. But initially in the man, Adam, Adam is brought into life and experience, realizing that he's not there to do his own thing. In the beginning, God forms this man and from jump lets him know why he's alive and begins to reveal to him unique responsibility if he's going to remain aligned to God the way that God desires. In Genesis chapter 2, it would sound like this. And the Lord God formed man from the dust and put him in the garden. And when he placed him in the garden, he began to reveal to him what the desire was. I really want to be here. And I want you to be here too. But it's not a free-for-all. I didn't make you just so that you could do you. Right? For those of us who believe that God's supreme interest is our ongoing happiness. Whatever I want, God must want it. That's a fallacy. And you can't reconcile that with the scriptures. Right? And we want to be broken. We want to be broken from this Western entertainment-driven model of Christianity that just seeks to search for Bible verses to authorize my own way of life, right? Paul told Timothy, in the last days, men will no longer adhere to sound doctrine. They'll no longer love the truth, and they will cast off all restraint, and they will search for themselves, teachers who are going to say what they want them to say. They will long to discover ear ticklers who are just going to endorse whatever desire or way of life they have an appetite for. Look at the consideration of the world around us. You could jump on YouTube right now, and I'm sure you could find some speaker, preacher, teacher who is going to be authorizing whatever wicked or corrupt appetite is still alive in the human experience. You're going to find somebody that is validating, that is authorizing, that is endorsing wickedness, darkness, corruption, rather than confronting it with real transformation, is authenticating it and then trying to leverage it to create bigger influence for himself. Rather than seeing people changed through the power of God, we are attempting to change God's mind about things that he desires. And we are derailing our alignment from God's leadership and creating this weird image where we can be Christian in whatever way we want to be Christian. But in the very beginning in the garden, you find God creating Adam and revealing to him a way of life that was going to be most conducive for him remaining aligned to God. In the very beginning, you find out That covenant is not a free-for-all. That with covenant comes boundaries. That with covenant comes expectations. That with covenant comes real work on our side to continue to partner and to participate 
in what is the glory and the freedom that we enjoy in being connected to God. And in the very beginning, you find that God is very serious about the things that he is permissive of and not. It would have sounded like this in Genesis chapter 2. I created this context for you because I wanted you to be here and I wanted to share life with you. And I'm going to put you in the garden so that we can begin to condition your responsibility. Because there is real responsibility here. It's not just a free-for-all. I didn't make you just so that you could show up and do whatever you wanted to do to think that I was just going to align myself with you and whatever you wanted. No, I created you because I wanted a people that I could share my life with. I wanted a people that would be mine. I wanted a people that would be defined by my love and my leadership. And as you continue throughout the scriptures, you realize that this desire has not changed. God longs to have a people that are going to be defined by his love and leadership. And he told Adam, we're going to enjoy life together, but don't touch that tree and don't touch that tree. These are the boundaries of covenant, right? And for any one of us who believe that covenant doesn't have boundaries, he loves me and I get to do whatever I want now. No, that's not the way that it works. Men that are married, tell your wife that. She loves me and I get to do whatever I want now. The idea of entering into covenant meant that there were now real boundaries, which meant that you were now aligning to your life to an ongoing way of permissions. Right? When you said yes to your wife, whether you viewed it this way or not, you immediately, or you should have been, saying no to every other woman that was ever going to be alive on the face of the earth. That's what yes to your wife meant. I'm yours, which means I am no others. I am all yours. And I will not compartmentalize my yes to you in a part-time way or even in a 90% way. I'm all yours. Well, in the very beginning, you find that God is speaking to Adam and he tells him, I want to share life with you. But it's important that you abide by the terms of the covenant because there are consequences for not abiding. And abiding is a term that we love in church life. Right? But abiding has consequences because abiding has terms. Abiding is not a free-for-all. Jesus told them in John 15, if you actually obey my commandments, you will abide in my love. Hear that. To remain in the love of God, we must obey the commandments that set the terms. To actually experientially abide in the love of God, we have to come under a particular leadership which means we acknowledge a certain construct of terms or permissions. And we realize that in this covenant experience, there are actual consequences. Thanks a lot, bro. Like I'm on a roll here. Like that in the experience of, these, of the covenant relationships, he derailed my whole train of thought, bro. I'm back now, like. In the terms of this covenant relationship and experience, there are boundaries. 
And you have to see something in the very beginning or else it easily gets manipulated as you continue on. The frame from the onset is the frame that we now use to treat the entirety of the scriptures. And that is God has a jealousy for a people. He longs to have a people that will be his. He wants a people that he can share himself with in an ongoing way. He wants to do life with us. And he is creating a context that is most conducive to him being able to walk in the cool of the day with them. He's creating a context because context matters to God because there is a context most conducive to his abiding. And that's what you get. I want to abide. I want to walk in the cool of the day. I want to have a people that are mine. We're going to extend the influence of our journeying or our covenant relationship in the garden. We're going to extend it to the furthest corners of the creation. But we're going to start here. And we're going to condition responsibility. And then we're going to extend it to the furthest corners of the creation. But these are the permissions. And we find that they eat of the tree. And they transgress God's desires. They actually break covenant with God. They violate the boundaries of the covenant. And God has to exile them. And this term exile is now going to frequently be known throughout the Old Testament and then even as we cross over into what is the New Testament. When they transgress the boundaries of the covenant, God would exile them. But initially in the garden, they are exiled because they transgress. They break the boundaries of God's abiding place. The environment or the habitat that is most conducive for God to walk in the midst is no longer intact. And he says, I have to do something about this. And so he exiles them. But as you continue throughout the scriptures, another unique place where you find these permissions being revealed would be Exodus 19. God has delivered them from Egypt. They are two months and some days out of Egyptian captivity, 400 years of slavery, and they are now free. God breaks into their circumstance with power. He exalts himself against and above the gods of Egypt. He is the Most High. He is Yahweh. He is the Sovereign Lord. And he will be revered amongst the nations. And he chooses to reveal himself with signs, wonders, miracles, and with power, he brings them out. Well, in Exodus 19, we find that God speaks to Moses, and he tells them, it's been two months and some days. Bring the children of Israel to the mount. I'm about to tell them what this is all about. And they come to the base of the mount, and God comes down. God is physically upon the earth. He is tangibly, visibly seen and experienced from the top of the mount. There's lightning, there's wind, there's thunder. The whole mount begins to shake and an entire nation of people see God for themselves upon the earth again. Well, God is once again upon the earth 
And he's revealing his desires to have a people for himself. And in Exodus 19, in the first six verses, he tells them, I'm going to reveal to you why I delivered you and brought you out. It wasn't just for you. It wasn't just so that now you could do your own thing. It wasn't just so that you could be free from Egypt to now come out and establish your own way of life, to go after all of your own unique pursuits, whatever ambition, whatever dream, whatever drive, whatever thing you wanted to chase after. No, no, we're going to clear all that up. Bring the people to the mount. I'm going to tell them what all of this is about. And he tells them, I long to have a people that would be mine. And in Exodus 19, verse 5, he says, If you will obey my voice and set your life up according to my commandments, then you will be my holy possession. If you will listen to my voice and if you will actually come under the yoke of my leadership, if you will actually abide in my love, which is obeying my commandments, then you will be a people that will be mine and you will be a holy possession to me. Well, here once again in Exodus 19, we find God's desires to have a people. However, we once again realize that God having a people that are his is not up to our own unique interpretation. Meaning, it's not a free-for-all. I want a people that are mine, but I'm also going to reveal to you what I mean by that. I'm going to define the terms. I'm going to set the boundaries. I'm going to reveal to you a way that if you would obey and abide in an ongoing way, then I will have the content. I need in order to abide in your midst because I long to be your God in your midst that will walk in the cool of the day amidst a people that are mine. And this is what God wants. And he's revealing to them once again. They would have understood again the terms of Eden. Because as you continue on, you find that God actually begins to go to great lengths to reveal to them the expectations that he has on a people that now belong to him. Right? Anyone who thinks that God is not interested in the day-to-day components of our life and how we actually set our life up to honor God and to obey him has never read the book of Leviticus. God is in every single nitty-gritty detail. Well, God doesn't care about the way that I do life. It only matters if I show up to church on Sunday. God's not interested in the things that I choose to do with my time as long as I show up on Sunday. That's the total expectation that God has on me. That is an absolute lie. And God begins to go to great lengths to reveal to them the desires that he has for a people that would be his possession, for a people that would be defined by his love and leadership. And at the end of Exodus, in the very last chapter and paragraph, we find that they end the work of building the tabernacle because this is what God wanted. 
a place where he could actually dwell in the midst of his people. And he gave Moses really incredible instructions on how to build for him a housing of sorts that would represent him being present in the midst of a people the way that he desired to be. And this is what our heart burns for. We want to have God present in the midst of us the way that he desires to be. I get it theologically, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. But then there are spaces and places There are times and seasons. There are unique moments along the timeline where you realize for yourself, God is everywhere all the time, but God is here. He's here. He's very present here. And we want to align our lives with the desire that God has to be uniquely present in the midst of a people where their way of life would create the context that is most conducive to God having an abiding place, to God having a habitat that he would consider to be conducive to him dwelling in the midst of us. That's what we want. Together, we are after a way of life, which is why it can't just be about Sundays. We are after a way of life that is going to create a context for God to be very and uniquely present in the midst of us, where our lives together coming under the yoke of his leadership, our lives together being defined by his love in a transformational way and in an ongoing way by obedience, us aligning our lives with his commandments, with his teachings, with his desires, with his way in an ongoing way going way we are given over to a way of life that he says is the way that will give him what he wants to walk in the midst of us and he begins that the last chapter of the book of exodus they complete the work of the tabernacle and when you flip the page they end the work of the tabernacle the glory shows up When you flip the page to Leviticus chapter 1, God begins now with the real work. It's time to set your life up right. It's time to set your life up right. For the things that I want and what I'm after, it's time to set your life up. And I'm going to, in some ways, spare us with a lot of the details through Exodus 1 to 17. But when you get to Leviticus 18... Let's look there together. We're going to read a couple of these verses. Leviticus 18, if you're familiar with the text, uh, I'm going to choose the beginning paragraph and then the last two paragraphs. Um, Not because the rest of it doesn't matter, but if you're familiar with the text, he gets into details on how to handle incest, adultery, child sacrifice, and Um, we're in a G-rated audience, so you can find the verse for yourself. Uh, But it's how we relate to animals. Um, Yes, it's there. Find it for yourself. Um, uh, God does not condone it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes, praise God. (laughs) 
Um, But in the beginning of Leviticus 18, hear these words. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Now this is after 17 chapters of what we would consider to be laws or regulations, which in an intimate way, we're going to begin to hear the heart of God as to why he's so interested in the details of how their life was set up and why he wants to so intimately invest himself in how our lives are set up. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes, but you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accordance with them. For I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he actually does them. For I am the Lord. Now we would better hear that in this way. Because as the church, as a people that are blood-bought and transformed, we are now planted in cities across the nations of the world to be planted as a heavenly colony. And we are living as representatives of King Jesus. We are ambassadors. We are representatives. We are witnesses. We are a heavenly colony. Now, in those terms, we would then interpret these words this way. The land that I've planted you in, do not familiarize yourself with their customs, their ways, or their appetites. You are not them, nor are you to be like them. Which means in our context, in your city, and in your nation, you are a people that are supposed to be different. You're not supposed to be like the rest of Orlando. You're not supposed to be intimately acquainted with the American dream and America's appetites. You're a people that are supposed to be under my leadership, transformed by my love, and to be known as a people that are in it, but not of it. You're a holy possession to me. You are living witnesses. You are ambassadors. You are my representatives. Don't be like them, is the way that we would interpret it for a present-day reality. We are not supposed to be the same as everyone and everything happening around us. We are not supposed to get hijacked by the appetites of our cities or our culture or our nation at large. And God is revealing to them, I want a people that are going to be mine and you must begin to see yourself this way if in an ongoing way you are going to successfully abide in my commandments. We are the people of God. We are a people that belong to King Jesus. And he, begin to get, or he begins to get into why that actually matters to him. Let's go down to verse 24, same chapter. Don't defile yourself by any of these things. For by all these, which are things that have already been laid out in this chapter, which again, chapter 18, is specifically dealing with incest, adultery, human sacrifice and relating to animals, but we're already 17 chapters in where there's been an extensive revealing of God's heart for how we set our life up. 
Don't defile yourself by any of these things. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. He's saying, I recognize the appetite that is in the rebellion of the nations. I'm aware of the hostility that is alive in people groups throughout the region. I am well aware that they are bucking my leadership and have no desire to actually be defined by me as their supreme leader or in an ongoing way to yield themselves to my love and my leadership. They don't want me and they've rejected my ways and therefore them as a people and even the land they occupy has become defiled. Don't be like them. Don't defile yourself by intermingling with the cultures and the peoples. This is what God is telling them. He says, for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I've brought a particular punishment upon it. And so that the land even itself has spewed out its inhabitants. Verse 26, but as for you, you're to keep my statutes and my judgments and you shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men who the land have been before you have done all of these abominations and the land has become defiled. Verse 30, thus you are to keep my charge that you don't practice any of these abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as to not defile yourselves with them for I am the Lord your God. In many times throughout the initial chapters, he says to them, which is one of the ways that you can create a frame for the book of Leviticus. Hey, listen, these guys do these things. Don't do that. You're different. Hey, these guys have these type of corrupt appetites. Don't do what they do. Be different from them. It's throughout the whole book of Leviticus. Flip over to chapter 20. Scroll all the way to the bottom, verse 22. We looked at chapter 18, now we're going to look at chapter 20. Verse 22. You are therefore to keep my statutes and all my ordinances and actually do them. Not just theoretically, you're actually supposed to do them. Practically set your life up by me revealing to you what I want. So that the land which I'm bringing you to will live and it won't spew you out. Moreover, you wouldn't or you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you. For they did all of these things and therefore I abhorred them. Hence I have said to you that you are to possess their land and I myself will give it to you to possess it. A land flowing with milk and honey. For I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. I have separated you from the peoples. This is God's desire to have a people that will be his. Which means they will not be given over to the intermingling by way of appetites that are found in the nations. That are found in the regions the hostile peoples that are rejecting the idea of God and his love and leadership. I want a people that are separate. Come out 
and be separate from them. Verse 26. Thus you are to be holy to me. The idea of being holy is being separate. It's being consecrated. It's the realization of being purchased and belonging to another. It's no longer being given over in a multitude of ways. It's exclusivity. I am yours. And the entirety of who I am belongs to you. You are now my everything. I belong to you. And you belong to me. Thus you are to be holy to me. For I the Lord am holy. And have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Not just set apart so that you could be disconnected from darkness and rebellion. It's not just to be away from something, but it's to be aligned to something. That's what he reveals to them in Exodus 19. I didn't just bring you out of compromise and darkness and captivity so that now you could do you and do your own thing. No, I brought you out so that now you could be mine and you could do my thing. I'm looking for you to be mine. I'm looking for you not to just go a million ways in life, but to go my way. I'm looking for you to align yourself with me and to now subscribe to a way of life that is going to best give me the habitat, which if you're familiar with the definition of a habitat, it is the environment that is most comfortable or most conducive for a creature or thing to find its place of living or being. A habitat. All creatures have a natural habitat. God has one too. And it's why he's so interested in the details or in the context. And it's because he wants to abide. He wants to walk in the midst. He wants to be among his people. And when they established the tabernacle, they found that God, through the whole book of Leviticus, began to reveal to them the way that was going to be necessary in order for him to remain the way that he wanted to be there. And there has to come a point in our journey where we ask ourselves, are we actually aligning our life with the way that God has revealed that is going to be the best way for him to dwell in the midst of us the way that he wants to be? And in a more personal way, is my life set up in the way that is best or most conducive to God abiding the way that he desires? Again, freedom is not a free-for-all. That's what Adam found out. That's what the children of Israel found out in Exodus 19. That's what they're finding out now as they're journeying, as they were actually living the content, but as we're journeying through the book of Leviticus, we find out that freedom is not a free-for-all. Well, it is for freedom that we have been set free. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen. Well, John 8, 31. Jesus actually tells them, we know John 8, 36, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Well, John 8, 31, he sets the context for freedom. Because again, freedom is not a free-for-all. He says, I know those that are actually mine. They're the ones that actually obey my commandments. 
He said, I'm well aware of the ones that actually belong to me. They're not the ones that just have a confession. They're not the ones with just some external observances through duty or obligations. They're the ones that actually obey my commandments in a consistent way. They're the ones that have actually come to me and are learning from me and have taken my yoke upon them. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your weary souls, which is Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Yoke being a lifestyle or a way of teaching. Take my yoke upon you. Take my teaching upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your weary souls. Well, he tells them in John 8, 31, I know those that are actually mine. They're the ones that consistently obey my commandments. They actually listen to what I'm telling them and they do it. He says, and in them obeying my commandments, they find the truth because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in finding the truth, it gives them the experience of freedom. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. But freedom is in the context of consistently living the truth, which is directly connected to consistently obeying his commandments. So if we want freedom, we have to know his commandments, then consistently live them so that we can enjoy experientially what he says is real freedom, which is the aligning of our life with the way that he desires or subscribes to. And once again, we find his desires in Leviticus 20. Turn over to Leviticus 22. All the way down to the bottom, last two verses of Leviticus 22. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. For I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. For I am the Lord. Once again, God's desires to have a people for himself transformed and for him to dwell in the midst. Turn over to Leviticus 25. Verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. We're familiar with this language, aliens and sojourners, from Hebrews chapter 11 in the consideration of that great cloud of witnesses, where he says that there are those that have gone on before us that realized that they have given themselves over to God and what he wanted. And in that, they now saw themselves as misfits. They saw themselves as not having their primary bearings in this world or the appetites of the system of the age. They saw themselves as aliens. They saw themselves as foreigners now at the consideration of the rest of the people groups that have yet to experience and enjoy the glory of this redemption that we know. 
but that we as a redeemed people now realize we are aliens in the consideration of the rest of this life. What they hunger for, the life that they prefer or go after, their way of life as peoples throughout the nations. We are misfits and we're just journeying with God, but we're journeying with God. And this is what he says, you are so joining with me. Flip over to Leviticus 26. Verse 11. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. For I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke the bars of your yoke and made you to be upright. God has a desire to have a people that are his. That will give themselves to a way of life together that provides him with the environment, provides him with the context, provides him with the habitat that is going to be most conducive to him being among us the way that he desires to be. Which is why in John 8, in the beginning, where Jesus says, those that are mine, they actually do what I say. They know the truth and they live their lives in freedom. In John 10, he would say, those that are mine, they know my voice. They don't follow other voices. They're not given over to other ways. They know me and I know them and they actually do what I say. In John 14, he says, I know those that actually love me. They're the ones that really obey me. And I'm aware of those that don't actually have a love for me. It's because they aren't actually willing to obey me. In John 15, it's once again, if you want to abide in my love, then you have to obey my commandments. It's important to us that we realize what God wants so that we can align our lives to what he calls his way. Because if not, then it just becomes a free-for-all and it's up to our own unique appetites or considerations where we can just be Christian or love Jesus whatever way we've determined. And in it being a free-for-all, we can all go our own ways and do our own things. God is way more specific than that. And so in our jealousy together as a people, we have longed to provide God with a context where he can abide in the midst of us where together as a people coming under the yoke of his leadership, which what that means is we want to know him. We want to know him and we actually want to walk with him in a deep way. We want to be his. It's not just fluffing stuff. It's not just flaky, materialistic, driven, entertainment Christianity. We actually want to know God. 
We want our lives to be transformed and we want to walk with him in a deep way consistently. And together as a people, we want to see ourselves planted in our city to bring him a witness. We want to be a people that are in love with his son, that are being conformed to his image. And in that, in our way of life together, we are providing God a context to be in the, in the midst of us. And the details matter. The details matter, which is why my consideration this morning is the book of Leviticus. Well, you might be like, well, bro, that's Old Testament. Well, Jesus ramps it up all throughout the Gospels with his idea of a context that would best or would be most conducive to creating a place of abiding. And we will get into that in the coming weeks with the consideration of other places, Acts 2 and 13 and on and on. But the goal this morning is to realize why we do what we do and why it actually matters. It matters that we are subscribing to a way of life. That's the invitation. The invitation is come and journey with us. Because we are aligning ourselves to God and in an ongoing way, subscribing to a way of life that is going to be most conducive for him to have a place to abide, for him to have a place where he can dwell, a resting place, a habitation, a God is here type of people and place. And all of the unique ingredients or components matter. And they matter because they're all working together in order to give God the construct, the habitation that he desires. And so it just can't be one or the other by our own unique or preferential treatment. And we'll get to that in the consideration of Acts 2 next week, where a habitation looks like corporate meetings, house meetings, house to house and sharing our lives together, times together where we share meals, becoming a house of prayer, and actually an ongoing way of life where we would be together in prayer often in a variety of ways, not just occupying space in a prayer room, but in our real lives and the intersections or how we're being knit together, where we would live hospitable to one another, opening up our hearts and homes, where we would live generously with one another, where our way of life would be the context where God would be in our midst. Because once again, we find details in Acts chapter 2. But I wanted to look at the details of God's own intimate desires. For one, to have a people that would be his. For two, that people that are his to be separate from the nations and to no longer live their life in alignment with their appetites or ways. Right? In some cases, our consideration is one of repentance, right? Where we must, if we must, repent of our allegiance to the Western Sunday event model of Christianity. To believe that that's what God wants for me. He just wants me to show up to church on Sunday, right? If that's my thought process, I am in need of repenting. <laughs> because God is after a way of life 
God is after the whole of our lives being yielded to him because he's in the details. He's in how we set our life up and it matters to him. And then together as a people, the construct or the habitat that we build by our way of life and what our way of life is building matters to him. Which is why when we arrive at the details of how we've actually chosen to go after a way of life together as church, it matters, but it matters because it's in the heart of God. It doesn't matter because, oh, well, well, you know, I mean, like, well, this is what Gladstone says. Who cares? Right? Like, oh, well, I mean, this is like Mike's vision. It's not Mike's vision. Mike is reading his Bible. <laughs> it's not my vision. It's not what I'm jealous for. Right? I've heard often over the years, oh, well, this is your thing. No, this is not my thing. This is in two plus decades of journeying with God. It's what's been revealed from the treatment of the scriptures. Right? And so it's not my thing. It's a Bible thing. And it could become your thing too if we gave ourselves to the scriptures to let God say what he wants to say where we're no longer trying to manipulate the text to fit into the things that we want. But where we're reading it and letting what we're reading change us rather than having to change it so that we can continue to do what we want rather than doing what God wants. And it matters. And so our way of life together matters because we're trying to give God a place for him to rest. Our way of life together matters because as God knits our lives together, Ephesians 2, 22, as he knits our lives together, he is creating for himself by the power of his spirit a unique habitation, a place where he can walk in the cool of the day again, where he can feel at home in the midst of us. And so I'm going to ask us, I'm going to close out by just praying for us this morning. Let's all stand together. I see these next weeks as an ongoing conversation. And so my goal isn't necessarily to land the plane in the most, um, let's just say, comfortable way as we're used to gatherings like this happening. Um, we have broken open a conversation and it will continue over these next weeks. But again, in what would be the first session of these series, it was, why does it actually matter how we do what we do? Does God even care or have any interest in what we are doing or how we have things set up? And does it matter to the Lord practically how my life is set up? The accountability or his interest in my day-to-day -day way. And by the day-to-day -day way, what my way of life is actually building. It matters to the Lord. It matters to the Lord.
And because it matters to God, it matters to us. Because it matters to God, it matters to us. Because we want him to have what he wants. And so in that, I'm just going to take a moment and pray for us as we are here together um, as a family, but then uniquely as families that are a part of a family. And I'm going to ask the Lord to give us grace for the consideration of our lives and in any way where there is an alteration necessary, that he would give us grace in order to alter our lives and more align with him. In order to alter our lives and to more align with him and what he wants. Um, you can just, let's just um, join hands with somebody that's standing next to you. Um, Lord, together as we stand here this morning, um, we just declare that you are the king of our lives. And that's more than a conversation to us. It's more than just a statement or a, a unique declaration. Um, Lord, we can declare and still not be surrendered. We can say things with our lips that aren't actually evident in our life or in our way of life. And we don't want there to be any conflict between the things that we know how to say and then the way that we actually live, and we live together. So when we say that you are the king of our lives, be enthroned, great God, in each one of our hearts. Be enthroned in the place of our affections, and in our appetites, and in our attention. Be enthroned in each one of us, that we might yield to you the way that you desire. Give us grace that would lead to more real and more intimate places of surrender. Give us grace so that individually, yes, but then as for me and my house, we might come under the banner of your leadership. As for me and my house, Lord, I'm praying, speak to me in whatever way is necessary in the consideration of my life and how my life is set up and then how my life has been integrated into a people and a church family. Lord, speak to me in whatever way it is that you desire this morning. Touch whatever you want to touch. Illuminate whatever needs illumination. Reveal whatever of your heart you long to reveal. Touch me in any way that I need to be touched. I pray this morning, Lord, because my desire is to come in a greater way under your leadership and to not just have it be this theological or even theoretical conversation that I just know how to have. Oh, well, I'm a Christian, but that doesn't actually mean anything in my real life. Lord, bring us under your leadership. Bring us under your leadership in the nitty-gritty, in the unique aspects of each of our lives. Lord, would you help us to build? Would you help us to build 
to build a place for you to rest in our individual lives, but then together as a people. It is for freedom that we have been set free. Lord, you delivered us. You redeemed us. You saved us. You healed us. But not so that we could wander. Not so that we could just do our own thing. But so that we could be intimately aligned to you. And that we could now consistently as a way of life know you and obey your commandments. Lord, this is what we want. We are your people, but we pray in a greater way, make us your people and make us to be yours. Make us to be yours.